Now the word justified summarizes that truth that we were just looking at about that judicial declaration that God made that we are now seen as righteous on the basis of our faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus. Because of this declaration, as we will soon see, those of us who are enemies of God now have peace with God. We have access to all that God has planned for us by faith in his grace. Peace with God is a restoration of a relationship with him. We often present the gospel as if this is a way to heaven. You, need to, you want to know how to get to heaven? Then this is what you need to go to heaven. And that's a point of truth there. But what we really need to present as the gospel is, this is a way you can have peace with your creator. This is a way you can have peace with God. This is a way you can have a relationship with God that you could not have any other way. Oh, and by the way, as a side benefit to that, heaven is to come. You and I have peace with God. Now, I wish we had more time to delve into this truth here, so how this applies it to how we may glory in tribulations. That's another whole message in itself. But there's one word that I want us to grasp out of the first five verses here, and it's the word hope. Hope. All of our hope. All of our assurance, all that God has promised about our eternal future is based on the truth that at just the right time in God's plan, Jesus died for the ungodly. Verse 7 informs us that we might possibly be willing to die for someone that we think of as righteous or so good that... We think that they might be worthy of dying for, but that's not the way it was with Jesus. Verse 8 and tell, and the verses 8 and 10 tell us that Jesus did not die for good people. Jesus died for sinners, the ungodly, as it says in verse 6, and those who were his enemies. And as we saw in chapter 3 a while back, that refers to all people, including all of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. Regardless of how good you think you are, how good you thought you were, there is none righteous, God says. None. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now verse 1 says that we're justified by faith. Some of you may remember Pastor Finnamore. He's told it more than once, telling about a test that he took in Bible school from a Mr. Troster, who's my father. And Pastor Finnegore had had a question there that asked what we are justified by, and he put we are justified by faith. And my father marked it wrong. And so Norm went to Dad and argued with him about the fact that the Bible says we're justified by faith. And Dad said, no, we're justified by his blood. But Romans 5, 1, we're justified by his blood. And Dad wouldn't budge. I think I must have taken that from him. But anyway, I believe that the 
answer to the question there, to settle the debate between the two of them, is that they're both right. We are justified by faith in the blood of Jesus. And it can be in no other way. God has made a plan so that the blood of Jesus shed for us would give us a path to heaven and a path or a relationship to him that couldn't be done any other way. It had to be that way. Now some of them, excuse me, just a moment here. The main point we need to see here is that the faith in the shed blood of Jesus saves us from the wrath of God against our sin, which we learned about in chapter 1 and verse 18 a few weeks ago. Now someone may say, well, wait a minute, I thought God is a God of love and grace. What's this you're saying about his wrath that we need to be saved from? Well, it is very true that God is indeed a God of love. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16 tell us explicitly that God is love. But the Bible is also very clear that God is holy and that he hates sin. And he exhibits great wrath against sin and against those who commit sin. The Old Testament is replete with statements about the wrath of God against those who disobeyed his law. The New Testament also speaks of the wrath of God. Jesus spoke of a time of wrath to come. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, John the Baptist said, He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul speaks of the wrath of God which comes on the children of disobedience. The Apostle John foresaw a future day recorded in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17 when it will be declared the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? As sinners, we are all destined to experience an awful wrath of God against our sin. But here we see a wonderful means that God has provided as a way to escape his wrath against our sin. As we're going to see, Adam died because of his sin. Jesus died for our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we read, For he, that is God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself. And as we're going to see more fully when we begin chapter 6, Jesus died as our substitute. It was as if our sins, we were nailed to the cross. All the sins I, we have ever committed, Jesus took as if they were his own. Jesus died as if he was Gary Troster. And you can put your name in there. Peter confirmed this in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinner, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. John speaks of Jesus in another way in 1 John 2 and verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. That's a big word, but it simply means that by taking our sins upon himself, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against our sin so that we who have trusted in him would never have to experience it. What a blessing. Jesus took the sins of the whole world, all people upon himself, but only those who put their faith and trust on him will ever know the benefit of it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Observe here that Paul did not say, if we were enemies, or some of us were enemies. What he did say was, for if, when, we were enemies. That is a positive statement that declares all of us are enemies of God. Jesus died to reconcile enemies, not friends. What is amazing about this verse is that it wasn't until after we had ceased to be enemies that Jesus died, but while we were still enemies. He died for us as his enemies making it possible for us to be reconciled and saved in life now and eternally by his life. Israel and the Palestinians have been enemies for a long time, and many have tried to mediate a peace deal with, between them, but without success. God did not sit down and ask us to come to the peace table to talk through and agree on a deal with him as to how we could get saved. No, God made a unilateral decision. And he made a way to have peace with him that would be ours if we would agree to the terms and accept them. The way to peace is always there whether we accept it or not. Paul puts it this way in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. We were far off as enemies, but now because of the offer of the blood of Jesus, we can be reconciled to God, and now we can have a hope of a blessed future and a relationship with God starting now. Now, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to look at the remainder of this passage today in great depth, but I want to summarize it in a way that I have given to you, and I hope all of you have gotten a, ch a chart, and if you haven't, uh, somebody can get some, please. I think the Harrisons down here need one. There should be some on the back table, maybe. Still. Oh, that's great. I used up all that I printed. Well, great, except for the ones that didn't get one. <laughs> What I want to do here in the remainder of this chapter is 
by using this chart, I want to look at two men, Adam and Jesus. And I want us to show here two basic points. On the left side is how one man's sin brought death upon all people and thus brought the wrath of God upon us and the need for the Savior. I need to remember that this is your left and this is your right. And that's hard for me to remember, but I'll try. This is your left and this <laughs> All right. I am right, right? Yes, left and right. <laughs> Uh, I always think of when I have to unloosen a nut and I have to go like this to, you know, something's like this and I have to think, okay, righty tight to left of Anyway, so the, the left side is how one man's sin brought sin and death upon all people and thus brought the wrath of God upon us and the need for a Savior, and that man is Adam. On the right side is how God's salvation through one man's righteousness, death, and resurrection brought grace and the justification and eternal life for all people who believe, and which is able to counteract the sin and the death that was brought about by Adam and its effects upon us. Of course, that man is Jesus. Now, for the sake of brevity here this morning, you'll notice that I have clumped together some verses in some instances here, which I have gone and taken and uh, put some verses that have a similar thought to them. I put them together so that we can look at them together rather than trying to go through every single verse. So on the left here to begin with, we have Adam. And in verses 12 and verse 19, we talk about here, we find that sin and death passed upon all people. And then in verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many are made sinners. And then in verse 20, we're going to see that sin abounds. Verse 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men and women, for all that, have, for that all have sinned. Now, after the fall into sin, the effects of it were soon going to become apparent. It wasn't very long when Cain murdered his brother Abel. Just a few generations, man had become so evil that God had decided to destroy all of them with a flood with the exception of one family. After the flood, God gave Noah's family a command to fill the earth. A few generations later, this descendants had failed to obey the command and decided to build them a city and a tower to reach the heaven. God didn't destroy them, but he did confuse their language and forced them to separate over the face of the earth. God gave a promise to a man called Abraham that he would become a great nation and the promised redeemer would be one of his descendants. Eventually, God gave Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, a set of laws through Moses that they were to obey, the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law revealed for all just what sin is. And what displeases God? Man was sinning all the, along, but there was not a standard before them so that they knew that what they were doing was wrong. This year we've been
been confronted with the COVID-19 pandemic. And just when things seem to be improving, all of a sudden we've seen a huge increases in the number of people getting sick. Why? Well, back earlier on, it was because testing wasn't being done very well. And, you know, so now all of a sudden they begin to do testing and people that have been sick right along, all of a sudden are being revealed as being sick and a number go. And that's exactly what happened. People had been sinning all along up until Noah's or Moses' day, and now God gives a standard, and all of a sudden, sin abounds. We know what we've been doing wrong. And so now all of a sudden it's as if there's this abundance of sin. No, it's been there all along, but now we know that it's sin. Because God has revealed it as sin. Verse 20 talks about that. Sin abounded because of the law of God revealing it. The law set up a religion and a means to find forgiveness of sin through the sacrifices of animals. But it didn't take long to reveal that the Israelites could not or would not keep God's law in Eventually, he judged them severely for their disobedience. The effects of sin have reached down through the centuries to our day, and we can easily see that it is still rampant when we see the sin that's around us. Sin that's being declared for, as being good, and we're having laws that are allowing sin to become even more rampant. And when we look at the truth in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we saw that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Adam's sin left us in a hopeless situation. The last part of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 says that we are without hope and without God in the world. Christ. Now, on the right side, Jesus, in verse 15, we find out that talks about the gift, which is righteousness, by grace, by one man to life, abounds the many who were dead. In verse 19, the last part, by the obedience of one, many are made righteous. Adam brought sin to all people. Jesus now is making it possible for righteousness to be brought to people. And then in chapter 5 and verse 20, the last part of the verse, grace abounded more. Sin abounded, but grace abounded more. Verse 12 described that beginning of this hopeful situation, but not all is lost. Verse 15 begins with one of those little words that have huge significance, and it's the word, but... Anytime you see a button in the Bible, it's like there's a flashing light that should be going on in your mind there because God has something that he wants to show you that is different. On the one side of the butt is something that may not be wonderful, but on the other side is something that he wants you to know, and that's the case here. But... Now, we come to a major distinction that we want to see in this chapter. 
that we want to, that is going to take us into chapter 6 as we learn the effects of God's grace. This is the but. Look at verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now, unfortunately, the King James starts this verse in a rather awkward way. It could be worded like this. The free gift is not like the offense, referring to the sin of Adam. Now, that offense resulted in death of the many, meaning all of mankind. That's a huge consequence, but this is where the but comes in. And we could cut out the part about the offense and just read the verse like this. But, much more... The grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. Now, even though the consequence was so horrible and Adam sinned, there was something that is greater. Much more, much greater is a free gift given by the grace of God. The topic of God's grace is huge. Denial and I sat in a Sunday school class quite a number of years ago now, and they took the pastor took us through a great study on grace over a number of weeks. You've got a long time to sit here. <laughs> no, it's a huge topic. Quite frankly, I struggle to comprehend God's grace. I look at my sin and I understand that God and grace forgives me, but I feel that I don't deserve it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. God's grace is extended to those who do not deserve it. Including me. Any other way would not be grace. There are many ways of defining grace. One way is to say that grace is a wonderful display of the love of God that he chooses to extend to those who have never earned it or deserved him to ever love them. Verse 20 talks about where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It's this verse... 20, that many people then and even today take us giving a license to sin. The thought is if grace abounds where sin abounds, then I ought to be able to sin and do whatever I want, and God's grace will abound towards me, and I'll be able to experience God's grace even greater the more I sin. And it's that kind of thinking that led to Paul asking the question in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We'll have to leave this further discussion of that thought for the study of Romans chapter 6. But as we continue in chapter 5, we're going to see the wonder of how God's grace is extended to us as sinners. On the left side again, Adam, in verses 16 and verse 18, we have the thoughts here that judgment by, comes by one to condemnation. 
Verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 18, therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he told him the truth of John chapter 3 and verse 16. And then a couple of verses later, he also said this. In verse 18, He that believes on him, Jesus, is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I was reading somewhere the other day, and we tried to think of where it was, about the authority that God gave to Adam when he was created. God told Adam that he was to subdue the earth, that he was to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And just how far that dominion and power was going to be and could extend was evidence when he sinned and he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The curse that God pronounced that day would extend to the entire earth and to all people who would be descendants of Adam. They would all be sinners. They would all be under the condemnation of God. At John 3.16, Jesus said that whosoever believes on Jesus will not perish. But there is another group of whosoever's that's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And there we find the people standing before God. I'm not going to read all of those verses. But there's a great white throne judgment, and the people of the earth are standing before God. And we find down in verse 15 that they have been judged, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Every person who has ever lived is alive today and ever will live in the future will be one of those two whosoever's. They can be a whosoever believes that they will only believe by faith in the Lord Jesus and the substitutionary death on the cross, or they will stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and be judged because they did not believe, and it says that whosoever was not found written in the book of will be cast into the lake of fire. condemnation that is spoken of in these verses. The death that Adam brought into the world was not temporary. It was to be a condemnation, to be an eternal separation called the second death from the life of God in the lake of fire forever. But praise the Lord. There is a free gift from God through Jesus. So that whosoever believes on him will not face that condemnation into the lake of fire. 
The question I have for you today is, which of those whosoever's are you? You have to be one or the other. And when the time comes to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, it will be too late to make a decision. It has to be made now. Habakkuk on the right, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 16, the free gift of justification being declared righteous, here is no more condemnation we've been talking about. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one the condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. The verse speaks of the free gift as of many offenses under justification of life. How could many offenses bring justification of life? Well, I believe the answer to that is found, for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and 12, and I'm only going to refer to chapter, uh, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, or the offenses, all the offenses of us all. Our offenses were laid on Jesus. He took them all on him. And so it's all of those offenses that were laid on Jesus that became the means of justification of life. Jesus took them on himself. As we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took my sin upon himself so that God could declare me and you righteous as he looks at us and sees us in Jesus. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is weighed down by this horrible burden that he carries on his back. And it's a picture of the weight of sin upon him. And eventually on his journey, he comes to a hill. And he climbs the hill. And at the top of the hill is a cross. And as he looks at the cross and stands there before the cross, the weight of the, the burden falls off his back and tumbles down. And he has been free from the condemnation of sin. He's free. And in Christ, the awful weight of condemnation that we have to look forward to, the wrath of God someday, when we trust in Jesus, that weight of condemnation is gone. We're free from what we rightly deserve for our sin. Now, verses 17 and 21 give us a good summary of what we've seen so far and add another perspective. And going back to the left again, we find that by one man's sin, death reigned in verse 17. For by one, if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Today, as there have been in the past, there are those 
individuals who want to rule the world. They want to reign over all people, but they're a little bit late. There is a power that already reigns over the world. It's the power of death. Its power is absolute, and nothing can humanly be done to overcome it. Old people try to prolong it by... They keep it from happening too quickly. They take all kinds of supplements that claim to help one live longer. They have heart transplants and pacemakers implanted trying to beat the clock. But every attempt to try to put it off is only just putting it off because they will fail. They will still die. Death reigns. It's a cruel master. It has no mercy. It's willing to kill anyone at any age. And it's all because of one man's sin. One writer said it this way. It is staggering to think how totally death has reigned under Adam. Everyone who was born dies. The mortality rate is 100%. No one survives. When a baby is born, it isn't a question of whether the baby will live or die. They most certainly will die. The only question is when. We think of the world as the land of the living, but really it is the land of the dying and billions of human bodies cast into the earth over the centuries prove this. No one gets off the earth alive. But, now we find on the right side the gift of righteousness on the believers go help them to reign in life by one man, Jesus Christ. Here is something, again, that is more powerful and abundant than the awful reigning power over sin. The second part of verse 17 tells us this. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. God's abounding grace provides a way to escape the reign of death. Oh, we will still die physically, even if we are alive when Jesus comes. Our sin-cursed bodies cannot enter into heaven 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that when we are raised, we will be changed. We're going to die, if you will, in a blink of an eye as God changes his earthly body into a heavenly body. But we will reign in life forever with him. Verse 21 talks about Adam again. And as sin reigned unto death, that as sin reigned over Unto death, even so, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only does death reign, but it is aided, it's abetted by another power that reigns alongside it, and that's the power of sin. Romans chapter 7 and 8 call it the law of sin, which we'll learn about in a few weeks. But as we've already seen today, because all has sinned, All will die, but there is hope. We've been talking about hope all the way through here. There is hope, as we find now in the last half of verse 21. Back on the right. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. 
by Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the glory of it. That as believers in Jesus, we are no longer under the oppressive power of death. The grace-given gift of righteousness by God means that we can reign in life. Not that we're going to sit on any throne, but that we are free from the reign of death with a glorious knowledge that we have eternal life in heaven to come that begins now when we believe on Jesus. Yes, Adam sinned. And there was an awful set of consequences that we are all confronted with because he did. But our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ has conquered the powers of sin and death. He's satisfied the wrath of God. His abounding grace provides for us a gift of righteousness so that we can have peace with God and a restored relationship with Him. And eternal life for all who believe. Have you claimed that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today so that you can know freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the power of death, and know that you have a restored relationship to God that you can have now and through eternity? It's very possible that there are people today in any size group like this. The chances are very good that there's somebody who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You may have been a member of this church all your life or some other church all your life and never come to the place of actually putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Don't put it off. Death, as I said, is a cruel master. It does not care on the age of a person, young or old. It will claim whoever it wants. There isn't a single one of us here today that's guaranteed that we will see tomorrow. There isn't a single one of us here today that's guaranteed that if we don't see tomorrow that as to what we're, where we're going to stand, you are guaranteed that if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, you will stand as a whosoever who's not been found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Today is the day of salvation, the writer of Hebrews tells us. If you have never come to put your faith and trust in Christ, make it today. And if you want help in knowing how to do that, come talk to me, come talk to Charlie, one of the many other men of the church here, and we'd be glad to share with you how you can know freedom in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice today in these wonderful truths that we've seen, how that one man sinned, and because one man sinned, all of us have fallen under the consequences of that sin, 
And we have nothing to look forward to in the future but to experience your wrath against sin. Oh, Father, how I thank you that the passage that we read today, that you commended your love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Thank you, Father, for providing a way that we could have eternal life through the wonderful gift of righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we exalt him today as our Savior and as our God. Father, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, if there is anyone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, that you would work in their hearts to not let this day go by until they put their faith and trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name.